0: Hello, welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast with me, Joe Wisby. I'm joined for this episode by actor and director Jonathan Glue to discuss his theatrical adaptation of John Lennon's In His Own Right. In 2015, Jonathan was granted the rights from Yoko Ono and the Lennon Estate to adapt John's first book of poetry and prose into a theatrical production. The show went on to be a huge hit at the 2015 Edinburgh Festival and was remounted at the V&A in 2016 where it rang alongside the You Say You Won a Revolution exhibition. Jonathan tells us the story of the production, what it was like dealing with the Lennon Estate and why John's poetry still has resonance today. Jonathan Glue, hello, welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. We're here to talk about primarily John's poetry, uh, In His Own Right, Spaniel Union Works and uh, the the shows that you performed for years ago now. Um, So we'll start off with a a good old-fashioned obvious question. When did, In His Own Right, Spaniel Union Works, John's poetry, when did it first enter your life?
1: Um, So, I mean, I I guess it is worth prefacing the the fact that I was a huge Beatles fan as kind of a teenager and kind of in a pre-internet age. Uh, a friend of mine who I was at school with, a lad called Phil, we were in a band together and he he turned up having been away on a holiday with his parents and they'd stayed in some cottage down in Sussex or something. And he 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 was like, I've got a present for you. And he'd stolen off their bookshelf the Penguin John Lennon, which I had no idea at this point existed. I, you know, I'd consumed all the Beatles albums, thought I'd kind of done everything that I could as a fan of the beat, And then I I had this book in my hand full of like pictures and and poems and and prose and uh it kind of blew my mind and I I spoke some other people that I knew were kind and and nobody knew anything about it really and and it was kind of a curio for me for a couple of years I was only I think what I was probably 14 15 I think I, I got into things like the national health cow and a few of like the kind of quite easy starter for 10 kind of pieces in there and then I moved to Liverpool. I I trained at the Liverpool Institute for for Performing Arts as an actor. And uh, the day that I moved there, I went out for lunch with my parents. And on the docks, they had a compendium of In His Own Right and Spaniard in the works. And that was the first time I'd seen it actually in a shop. And I was like, well, I'll just buy it. Obstensibly, it's exactly the same book in a different order. But I I was and then and it kind of lived with me from that point, to be honest
0: what was it about it that that stood out to you was that did it grab you straight away did you read it persistently over over like the years or did it kind of grow on you
1: I think I think like like an album like a tricky album I think there were like a few tracks on it like a few there were a few pieces that I absolutely got thought were hilarious you know the fat growth on Eric Herbal the wrestling dog you know those kind of ones that aren't they don't take a lot of excavation to understand and to enjoy. And there were some that I really, really didn't understand right until we kind of, I was preparing for the show actually, but kind of in my drama school training, you know, you'd be looking at Shakespeare and that's all about kind of excavating text. And the more you kind of excavate, the more it kind of reveals itself. And I found that a lot of it had exactly that same ethos you know the more digging you did the the better and richer and and more interesting all of it was
0: so how did it get from that experience that you had as a as a, as a young man with the book to uh, the idea for the show was it something that that was brewing with you for a long time Tell us <laughs> how that kind of came about
1: I mean I think I think by the time I'd left drama school I knew that I wanted to make it into a show but I was like a 21-year-old lad from Leyland in Lancashire. And it's like, I just don't think there was anywhere I could fathom what even the hoops would be in order to kind of turn it into a show, let alone know how I'd put it on stage or, or any of that. And at that time, i, I just trained as an actor. I, you know, I didn't really have the skills to get it anywhere. So it, it kind of sat on a shelf, but it was, it was just one of those ideas that was in the back pocket. And I kind of, but I was also scared of it, right? It's like the idea of getting the right but then to actually do it justice and what what the weight of doing it as somebody who loved it and so but I, I basically look at it once a year I think I'd take it off the shelf I'd read it it was like a check to go is this still a good idea yes it's still a really good idea and th- and then, I think it was so about 15 years I kind of sat on it on and off and and every year I expected somebody to go oh John Lennon's in his own rights going on at such and such and me going yeah yeah well it was bound to happen and it kind of still never had
0: so you so you you were you were fearful then initially of of doing it was it something that you um, I mean 15 years is a long time was there a real kind of lightning bolt moment um
1: I think I think my fear was about the the kind of the administrative hoops of it more than the artistic hoops of it because I, I I I was confident that once I'd engaged with it like in terms of working with actors on it and adapting it that 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 stuff would be fine. It was the how do you get the rights? What you know who do who's the first person I talk to and 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 everybody else after that point and and I knew that if it was going to be my thing that I wasn't going to you know a, approach a big producer that I wanted to make it I wanted to make it and I wanted full control of it and I wanted to make it just in the way that I wanted to make it and kind of see what happened from there really.
0: So I, I dare say that many listeners to this podcast probably wouldn't have ever written to the leathern estate in any form but you're someone that has as you say that must have been such a daunting letter to sit down and, and draft how did you approach that?
1: Um, Well, I kind of flippantly call it like the best letter I've ever written. And I did spend quite a lot of time thinking about what I'd write and then then kind of crafting it. I mean, my my conceit was that the Lennon estate will undoubtedly get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of requests for every facet of kind of John Lennon's life at, at some point. And so... I just wanted to be as open hearted and as honest about what my reasons for wanting to do it were and what exactly I wanted to do with it. So I was kind of really explicit in it that I didn't want to use any of John's music. I didn't want any Beatles songs in it. This wasn't a jukebox musical. This this was this was literally going to be a celebration of John Lennon, the writer which was like the big and so it was kind of a number of headline bullet points another thing was nobody was going to be John Lennon nobody was going to pretend to be John Lennon nobody was going to pretend to the Beatles like the only words on stage we were going to say were the words in the book Mm. and and that whilst I was going to adapt it for the stage I wasn't going to cut it and I wasn't going to change it all around and my and my idea because it was absolutely John Lennon in his own right, rather than Spaniard in the works or skywriting. Um, I wanted to do it from the front cover to the back cover in the order that it appeared with all the drawings like animated and projected kind of throughout. And I think the integrity of that kind of that helped. And then the model for, for how I wanted to do it, I think probably helped me because um, I did it as part of what's called the PBH Free Fringe at the Edinburgh Festival. And it was kind of quite a new model at the time. And the free fringe basically allows, Edinburgh's become massively prohibitive for kind of people on a shoestring to take work up. And so the free fringe allows, you; they give you a free venue um, and uh, help you with a, a lot of the kind of, the costing things around it. Uh, by the same token, you don't charge a ticket price. It's, you kind of hat it at the end and you kind of pay, people pay what they want. So I was able to kind of make the explicit case to the estate that I wasn't doing this to kind of cash in. This wasn't going to be a thing that was going to make me uber amounts of money. And what I had was a hunch that the work still resonated with people, that people still could engage with it and find it funny and interesting and spiky and all of the great things about it. The pitch was basically, I just want to test this theory. And, and if and if I'm wrong, then that, then that's that's fine and you never have to talk to me again.
0: <laughs> how confident were you? Was it a pun or did you secretly think I'm in here? Or How did you feel about, that, about it? I mean, I, I, I mean, it
1: was definitely a, a dream. I, I'd, I'd never written to anyone for the rights of anything before. I didn't know whether they, you know, I, I, yeah, I just had no idea. I, I kind of hoped and prayed that it was good. I think that I made a, a good case for why they should let me do it but but they had no reason to let me do it right it's like they didn't know me they it wasn't going to make them any i i needed them to kind of share in my vision of it basically so i think i think i i hoped and hoped and hoped i would try not to be too cynical about it but i i think i sent it thinking there's a 50-50 that i'm even going to get a response really
0: so then you did get that response can you tell us a little bit about after that letter was sent, what the process was like, the kind of journey that you went on until you got that final okay from them?
1: Well, well, it was great, actually. Um, uh, Jonas Herbsman um, was, and I think still is, the head of the estate uh, at that time anyway. And he was... Uh, we we just started exchanging very friendly emails, really. He, um, he was interested and wanted to kind of... I think there were a few little specific things he wanted to know about, but actually... He and the the estate throughout were really very open and and very lovely actually about how they supported it when we did it up in Edinburgh. Yoko's bookkeeper came to see the show. She was on on, on holiday. I think she was doing a cruise, and which happened to be in Edinburgh. So she came along and saw it, and she was absolutely fantastic. And we had a you know a, a great time. So so the estate were just really lovely throughout. You know, I tried to keep them in the loop about everything. If I had an interview for something specific, you know, I, I wanted to, I think it was all about transparency for me and just to make sure that they could see that my, I had honourable intentions and that I wasn't like a commercial shark, just looking to make a fast book on something.
0: So I'm curious to find out maybe after you got the okay, what kind of research, I- I would say that you did, people that you spoke to that maybe were involved in the the publishing. You mentioned Robert Freeman, the photographer, before we kind of came on, uh, started to record. Who did you speak to uh, over the course of this process?
1: Well, it, it was kind of a huge scattergun, really. I mean, I, I wanted, my dream was always that I would get to speak to at least a couple of people who knew John Lennon because it felt like that, that would be really important. And the more people that I felt like I could speak to who actually knew John Lennon, the kind of closer to John Lennon it and we would be in the kind of endeavour of making it. And so um, I, I kind of wrote, again, lots of quite open-hearted letters to lots of people. Um, and the first person that I spoke to, which properly made my kind of heart race, was Tom Mashler. Uh, who was the uh, the original man at Jonathan Cape, who suggested that John publish it. And, and that was kind of terrifying and lovely. And he, you know, he told me lots of beautiful stories about, you know, John and how they met and the writing. It, it was only a couple of years before that, that Tom Mashler had sold all of the, uh, the original drawings at auction, because John had famously given him a brown envelope full of all the original manuscripts and drawings. And the, the Sotheby's auction had made him quite a lot of money. I think. I, I remember. I don't really remember a great deal of the contents of the first call because it just came out of the blue as well. He literally just called me and just started talking, and I, I think I was a bit like, "Oh, uh, you know." I think I was probably still in my pajamas, having just done the school runner. It definitely didn't wasn't what I expected. Um, but he was he was really lovely. And I spoke to him after the show when the show got some really great reviews and he called me because he just read one in The Spectator and was like 100% on me kind of going, where's it going now? What are you doing? What are you planning? You know, it was a bit like, again, it was like, "Okay, I'm just I'm just formulating. So uh, so I spoke to him. That was lovely. Um, Yeah, I got in touch with Robert Freeman. Because we, I initially thought about using the image from the front of In His Own Right on the poster, and I wanted to make sure that that was okay with him. And then, and from that, actually, he was—he uh, just moved over from Spain. He'd suffered quite a bad stroke a few years earlier, and and then had come over to Spain um, from Spain and was living in South London. And I, I just used to go visit him because he was—he was very funny and a really lovely bloke. And so we just sat over a cup of tea, and I, I just. Quiz him about. I mean, he'd had the most amazing life. If any of your listeners don't know about Robert Freeman's life, there's a, he, he's written a couple of books about his work, and wow, the, the man did. He had all sorts of anecdotes. Um, but and he apparently, who knows, in the annals of time, because he, he used to live in a flat in near the V that was above John and Cynthia, I think, and it was he. He claims that it was him that got John into jazz. Um, so they were my two kind of people that I was really proud to have kind of spoken to who were there at the time. Mark Lewisone, um, I'd written uh, an email to just on his website, actually, just to say, look, I've got the rights to do this. Slightly embarrassingly at the time, I don't think I realized just quite what an authority he is and was. And, you know, um, but it was lovely. We, we, we had a few beers and I showed him some of the kind of animation uh, work that I'd been Doing with a, a lady called Sin Yi Hao who did all the animation for the show, and and I think and the more we talked about it, I think he could see that absolutely I was I was doing it for all the right reasons, and 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 from that point on, me and Mark have been firm friends, and he he was really helpful throughout the process. He found me a really great bit of footage from not only but also where John does the about the awful poem that's right in the back of the book. It was always my intention that that would be the last bit in the show would be john doing that because he does it straight down the barrel of the camera and it's i mean it's just great and but i could only find a really dreadful kind of copy of it on youtube and i mentioned it to mark and he's like oh i've you know like in, in a real mark way, oh i've got the original kind of footage taken off the like the roll." and he so he was lovely and helped me with things like that and um He came to the first, we did like a little trial run above a pub before we went to Edinburgh. He came to that and, you know, and he came to see a couple of times in Edinburgh. And then he helped me do some press for the show as well. So he was a huge, a huge help. I had, I had one person that was the, like the one that got away. Okay. And that was Paul McCartney. So it was my dream, dream, dream was that... I'd get Paul to record the foreword that he wrote at the start of in his own right. And that would be how the show opened would be this amazing audio of Paul McCartney, 50 years on read, like doing his thing. It, I didn't care what the quality was. If it was in a voice note, it was like, and I wrote all the emails to all the people. And um, he was on a huge world tour at the time. So I I knew it was a bit of a punt and um, and it didn't actually end up happening. But I, I mean, I I tried every way that I could. And so I'd met him a couple of times through my being at the Liverpool Institute. So I tried through all of the angles, all the angles of everybody that I knew. So that never happened. But if we ever do it again, I'll, I'll definitely try again because I just think it would be a beautiful thing.
0: It would be, that would be incredible. I'm smiling, just thinking about the idea of that. Um, did you get any insight from those three people that you mentioned there about, maybe about how John felt about, in his own right, did you get any idea of, was it something that he was really proud of? There's, there's always that sense that it was with John's writing that he kind of tossed it off and then Mimi would burn it all anyway. And so did you get any insight about how he felt about the book once it was out?
1: Mark told me a story about the fact that a huge stack of his other writing was lost in a fire or, or was lost, at the, I think, at the Jacaranda. And he was heartbroken. Apparently he was like... Yeah, inconsolable about it. So that alone makes me think that this wasn't, as much as it has this kind of whimsical tone to it, I, I do feel like he was, he, he knew what, he, I mean, you look at the work, it's incredibly detailed. And as much as it turns out he wrote it quite automatic writing, I don't think it was massively crafted it was incredibly specific, and I can't think that he wouldn't have been anything other than proud of the work and the drawings as well. They're, they're absolutely fantastic. So, cool. yeah, I, I think he did take it quite seriously, but not in a way that publicly he, you know, that that wouldn't have been cool, right? Yeah. Um, but I, I, I kind of have this idea that you know at the time it was what sixty four, so it was Hard Days Night and Beatles for Sale. I mean, this was an outlet for that kind of more grey area, slightly spikier, edgier, and, and and a kind of a real homage to the goons and all of that kind of world that he'd grown up in that he clearly, like, loved. You see it in all the interviews, don't you? You know, it's like... And it's just part of all of their patter. Yeah, I, I think I think it, like, he took it quite seriously.
0: I think it's interesting, just as you mentioned the goons there, have you seen Get Back? Have you watched Get Back?
1: Uh, yeah, a couple
0: of times. Uh, the scene with Peter Sellers in, which is a fascinating kind of moment in the film anyway, because it's just so awkward. But in that moment, that's when John had been relatively calm, I suppose, up until that point, starts doing these kind of stream of consciousness stuff, which is almost poetry, isn't it, really? Yeah, straight, yeah. To, straight to camera, while Sellers is is there. who Sellers is not that... Sellers so is, he, he is an actor, essentially. If you give him a script, he can produce magic, but he's not a stand-up. Um, yeah. And he looks he looks a little bit out of his depth, maybe, there. Um, but I think in that moment, you see a little window of John maybe trying to impress Sellers or just reacting to Sellers. But that's poetry, isn't it, really, what he's doing down the camera?
1: Yeah, yeah, 100%. And, and I mean, you see it in all the way through Get Back, though, just those off-the-cuff, the, the speed of thought in, in all of the... And so it, it's kind of no surprised that the work is as it is, but I I just don't think it it gets its kind of weight in history really, just because it it is quite dense and it is quite tricky to get your head around. I mean, I, I, I did think about uh, when we did the show doing a kind of a York Notes version of it, you know, like you get with Shakespeare plays just to kind of have the annotated version next to it. So you could kind of go. There was a bit in there. Uh, there's a poem in there called Liddypool in, in his own right. And, uh, and it's, it's lots of bits of Liverpool culture and, and history in there. And there was a bit in it. There was a line. We are not happy with her Queen Victoria's monologue. I, just for the life of me, I've no idea what this was. This line was about, and I kind of th- th- there's bits about boats uh, to New Brighton and all this kind of geographical knowledge. And it took um, a Liverpoolian friend of mine, Ian Warburton. Um, I, I kind of sent it to him, and 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 he was like, "Well, there's a statue of Queen Victoria in Liverpool that, if you view it from a certain angle, it looks like she's got a huge penis." <laughs> So now we know, absolutely. And it's it's like that level of detail that's in like in all of it. That just I find it so fascinating.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the the show itself. Was it an easy process to adapt?
1: I don't remember it being hugely difficult. I think I think the first thing I had to just, had to know was for how many voices it was going to be done for. And once I'd kind of gone through it a few times. It was quite clear that three was the magic number, really, because a lot of the a lot of the pieces have a central narrator character and then a couple of kind of either the person that they're talking about. I mean, like no flies on Frank, you've got Frank, uh, Frank's wife and then Frank's uh, and then a narrator. So there's there's four. But I was like, that's fine, because the actress can do that one and that one. And three was also the magic number in budgetary terms. That was the maximum I was ever going to be able to afford to get us there. So, so once, we, once that was the case, I think it kind of found its own feet because a lot of the time it's about just going who's speaking now and, and how do they kind of interrelate. And the separation of the voices is hopefully what makes it more understandable for an audience as well. I was a little nervous because I made the decision that I wanted to set a couple of bits to music, but not, not any Beatles music or John. Lennon. like we did good dog, Nigel as a, um, a little barbershop number Mm -hmm. Um, just because I I felt like the punchline of it worked a little bit stronger. There was a, a couple of others that we, we, we played around with some music and that, so that was slightly daunting in that I didn't, Of course, it's going to be daunting. You're writing music to some words that John Lennon wrote. (laughs) But I just kept having to check myself and kind of go, is this serving this bit in the best way that I can think to serve it? And if the answer was yes, then you just kind of ploughed on, really. And so the adaptation of the actual getting the script was was kind of one thing. And then the, once I got it in a room with Cassie and Pete, who I did the show with, and we really started playing with it, I mean, that's when it really comes to life, because everybody else's ideas, and it's not just me in my own head. And um, and then what, like, um, Sin Yi Hao, this animator friend of mine, then put behind it, also then just kind of elevates the kind of adaptation into something else and makes it more of a, a theatrical experience rather than just a man on stage reading from the, from the book, which some people came fully expecting it to be. And, I mean, and we, I mean, we staged it in, I'd say, huge parentheses in that we had three boxes <laughs> and a, suit, a suitcase with some things in it. But that was all we needed, really, because you kind of have to get out of the way of it because the language is so great the more you add, the more you can kind of take away, if that makes sense.
0: Tell us a little bit about the the kind of story of the, the release and the production, I suppose. So as you say, it went up to to Edinburgh. What mm. was the initial kind of response to it? How did you feel it went initially?
1: Oh, I mean, I, I, I basically spent most of the time in the run-up just sending emails to all the people all the time um, because once we got to edinburgh edinburgh is also as a as a festival it's predicated on having some money behind you really and a lot of shows kind of get teams of flyers there's posters everywhere and i just knew that we weren't going to be able to do that 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 wasn't and so we i i just needed a different strategy so i spent a bit of we did a kickstarter campaign and we raised like five and a half thousand pounds for the show and some of that budget went into i put like a i got i bought a an expensive but very worthwhile half page flyer advert for the show in the fringe program which you get a listing in the fringe program but this was to go like look we're here because i just knew that would or i hoped that would capture the imagination of some media and just some of the general public who were like oh john you know that that that's interesting and and that that was very useful actually and then i had i had a bit of look from writing many, many, many emails. Uh, Peter Aspden from the Financial Times did a a full two page spread on the show before we went up. Then the Guardian did a little bit and um, the Today programme, me and Mark both did the Today programme together while we are up in Edinburgh. So we had a little bit of a buzz kind of of that stuff which really helped in getting an audience in or just just to make ourselves more visible. That was always my biggest fear about the whole project is that we'd go, and just suffer by the deluge of other things there are to see at Edinburgh. And we just kind of get lost in the melee of everything. And um, thankfully we didn't. And audience, the audience reaction was was just great. It was really great. It's incredibly funny when it needs to, when, when it is incredibly funny. Mm. It's it's really on the on the edge quite a lot. And, and, and that friction was was something that we worked really hard not to apologise for, but also to kind of go, we're, this is safe, we're, in a, we're all in a safe space, we can say these words. It, it, so it was great. My, my rea- I, I couldn't have been happier with how the audience is, kind of took it. And, it, and it, we did, we, I mean, we were full most of the time. It was great. Which for a show in a free fringe venue at the time we were on was, yeah, it was great.
0: And then, so after that, where did you take it after that? What was the story of the production after that?
1: Well, straight after that, I actually went off and did a show. Um, I, I, I was doing, I went did As You Like It at the National, so it kind of took me away from, from it for a little while. But I think that was probably for the best, because I think I would have pushed too hard in too many directions. Um, and then we were approached uh, about six months later by the Victoria and Albert Museum, who came and saw it. And they had a, an exhibition called You Say You Want a Revolution, which was all about kind of 60s counterculture. And so they, um, they invited us to kind of remount it, and we ran it over a few weekends alongside the exhibition, which was great. Um, it was just just really lovely. We could really share it with a bigger kind of audience. Um, there was a, in a fantastic space, actually. Um, I could get Robert Freeman to come and see it, which was a really lovely thing, having kind of met him a few times by that point. Uh, Mark came and we did a and a um, after the show, which is on YouTube, actually. And then after that, it's kind of very much been put to bed for the moment for a few reasons, I think. Um, I think language has become increasingly politicised at the moment. Mm. And I don't think we could do in his own right in the way that we did it in 2015 now without... Without causing some offence to people, and and the one thing that I absolutely am adamant about doing any of this work of John's is that it's to celebrate how amazing it is, um, and and I think there is possibly a, a show which will take across John's writing, and we'll just set. it. But I absolutely don't want a, a, to make a show that people are picketing because there is a a word from 1963 that that isn't doesn't feel like it's part of kind of common parlance anymore Mm. so so um and i um i was in new york a couple of years ago doing a doing a show and i i went and uh, met up with the estate and we talked about kind of future ideas for it but i was very much of that opinion at the time it was like i think the next the next time to to jump in will reveal itself yeah and we had talked about for John's 80th birthday, maybe doing something in New York with some of his writing, but then obviously the pandemic kind of quashed a lot of that stuff. So the conversation's ongoing. I'd love to keep it as part of my life because I just think the work's so good.
0: Just briefly, Stan, on what you were talking about there, did you get any of that kind of reaction from some of the language from your production in
1: 2015? Yes, yeah, definitely. But not
0: in a way that people
1: were kind of walking out. I think. I think. Yeah, absolutely. There, there are a few moments where, and this is what what, what I meant about not apologising for it. I think tonally, we just approach the work in a way that we just we we, we just hold the moment w- where you could feel a friction between mm-hmm. you and the audience, and you could hold it and just be like, "This is, you know, it's, the transaction is this is okay to be uncomfortable? Yeah, because this is uncomfortable." Right. It's like and even when John wrote it, it was probably uncomfortable. And he wrote it probably because he wanted it to be uncomfortable. I'm, I'm of the opinion that he didn't want to offend people. What he wanted to do was push people into those those grey areas and just see how exhilarating it is to sit in that. And I feel like we've slightly moved past that
0: as a as a place to push people at the moment. Which is sort of remarkable, considering it's only seven years, but um, it, it sort of shows kind of uh, how quickly things change. As you say, even though uh, this is obviously still kind of uh, in the air a little bit about you may return to this at some point, did the whole project over the course of those years, first of all, did it change your view of of John or or, or John's writing at all?
1: I just think it made me fall more and more in love with it, to be honest. I remember when we finished in his own right in Edinburgh and being incredibly sad when I came home because to have learned all of that material and to kind of have it so alive in you, mm. I, I remember it being a week later and I was just kind of, I don't know, idly going over a, a piece in my hairs like the Fingal Toad Retort on Tele- vicious or something, which is kind of packed with kind of great substitutions of words for other words. And I just remember being really sad that it was like, I know that I'm never going to know it as well as I know it now, or I knew it then, you know, it's like, it's like when you finish an amazing novel and you're like, I'm never going to get to spend time with those characters in the same way. But my, I mean, I'm completely undiminished in my kind of passion for it and my love for the for the writing i just think it's yeah i mean it's unlike anything else and it's 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 just there and so few people know it
0: why do you think that is do you think do you think it's been slightly written out of that that beat was history because in i mean in the anthology there's a little you know three or four minute clip mm-hmm. um so it is in there do you think there's any kind of agency as to why it's not better known
1: i mean i, I don't know if there's any <laughs> Kind of cynical reason why it's happened. I mean, my thought is that possibly because it's a solo project in the middle of the creation of this amazing band, so maybe it doesn't quite fit the the kind of narrative arc of of where they are and where they're going. And and it is a strange little side bit. It's also it is it is also quite difficult. I can imagine a lot of people will have bought it at the time and since and kind of gone, oh god, this is this is hard or just not very good, you know. that they, they just might, might not have quite got it, and it, it's got this label, hasn't it? Like nonsense poetry, mm. which makes it feel like really throwaway and really, I don't know, slightly meaningless. But a, but actually, what it is is incredibly sophisticated and specific, and and rooted in something. Each of the things is definitely that they haven't come about just by chance. John Lennon wrote them right yeah I don't know I mean I I do find it amazing like in a world where we're never gonna get another Beatles album you know that actually that these are 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 part of the kind of lesser excavated parts of the Beatles you know canon of things
0: absolutely well you know you you absolutely did your part in excavating it from that particular cavern so um thank you for that and yeah Jonathan thanks thanks so much for your time it's been a real uh, joy talking to you Thanks for having me, Joe. Cheers.